Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 37. Uh, This is a surprisingly, for me, very short intro today because I have a guest here. Um, But before we jump into the guest, there's one item I want to share with you first. So I've started a new thing for patrons of the podcast who want to have a discussion with me about what you've heard. After each episode, I'm going to go online for a live hangout where you guys can ask me questions or share your insights after listening to the podcast. And we're doing this through the Discord platform, and it's an invite only for patrons. And we just had our first call on July 19th about the lactic acid episode. It was so much fun. We had Mark from Peru in uh, Finca Rosenheim, and you might remember him as um, my guest for episode 27, one of my favorite episodes. I also had Lowell from Honduras, Einstein from Brazil, Kurt in Panama, and Ben in Hawaii, and then me here in Colombia. And it was really interesting to get the perspective from opposite scales, like the size of a farmer in Brazil versus Hawaii. And uh, another fun thing that happened in that session is Ben shared what he pays for coffee cherry in Hawaii, which left us, us producers in Latin America, just scratching our heads. Um, So that was really fun. And it was really a treat to hear from you guys. And I think that you will also enjoy learning from each other. And then you get to listen to the challenges faced in different countries and then how different countries also tackle those challenges. So we can really learn from other people who have already solved the problems that we may be facing. So we also recorded the session. And if you weren't able to join us live, this is something that we're going to do. We're going to record it and then post it after the fact so that you can join in in whatever time zone that you happen to be in. And it's all edited and available on Patreon right now. Okay, that's all. Check the links in the show notes if you want to join us for the next live session coming up. So Back to today's episode. Um, It's always a treat when I have a guest, and today I'm excited to introduce you to my friend Jamie. She's a green buyer. A green buyer is someone who usually works for an importer or roaster and buys the raw material, the stuff that I work on, and takes it to the next step. I've met many green buyers in my time working with producers, and I find Jamie's approach to her job really refreshing. Join us in this conversation where we talk about buying relationships. She walks us through her approach to buying and love of spreadsheets. We talk about cultural clashes in communication between American and Latin cultures. I think this conversation can be useful for coffee producers who are maybe new to the specialty industry or are looking to get into different markets so you can kind of understand the relationship between a producer and a green buyer and start to understand what green buyers like Jamie are looking for. And I think this could also be interesting for coffee enthusiasts or people who may be looking for a change in in career. A green buyer is a pretty interesting job, and I think you'll enjoy hearing about it from Jamie. All right, let's get started. I don't really know your coffee story, like how you started, like who did you learn coffee from? Oh, yeah, it was interesting. So I kind of went... Most green buyers will go, like, they start as a barista, and then they go to a roaster, and then they go to a green buyer, and then maybe later in their career, they work for an importer. Um, And so uh, I kind of went backwards. So I I studied economics and biology in college, and then uh, I did woofing after school. So 
I got to travel around and work on some different farms in Spain and Brazil, and that's how I, I learned some Spanish and some Portuguese. And um, I was like, okay, I know what I I know what I like to do. I know I like working with uh, small farmers, but I also, you know, kind of miss the U.S. I miss my own culture or whatever, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I learned what a green buyer was, and I was like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> And so, like, basically what I did was um, when I got home, I just sort of, like, cold emailed a bunch of importers and was like, do you need a trading assistant? And then I started working at, um, I got a job at at Inter-American Coffee uh, in Houston, um, and they kind of, like, allowed me to pretty quickly move up to a position where I was buying and selling coffee. And so, like, I wanted to sell, I wanted to work with, like, you know, cool specialty coffee shops. So I had to also like source coffee for them that would meet their needs, which meant that I got to work with, you know, a lot of new and interesting supply chains, you know, in retrospect, I realized they were also like the super tedious and hard to work ones, (laughs) but it was great. I didn't care. You know, I, I I was learning so much and yeah, it really, really helped me like learn how to put things together. And then, um, that's how I got involved with Merit because I was trying to sell them coffee. Like I wanted them to be my client um, and they were pretty new. Um, so just like for the soundbite or whatever, um, Merit is a roaster retailer in Texas um, based out of San Antonio. And I was in Houston at the time. So um, they were, they had had the cafes for quite a while at that point but they had just started roasting in the year prior. And so, yeah, I just, I met with them. I really liked what they were doing. Um, I thought that the quality of the cafes was really, really good when I was there. And uh, so I just asked them if they wanted to hire me as their green buyer and it really worked out. And that was kind of like where I, you know, as you know, like that was sort of where I um, learned my identity as a green buyer and learned how I like to work and what types of coffees I like to work with and um, just how to navigate the different parts of the coffee industry. Um, And it was cool because since I had sort of like gone from this, you know, sort of more global view of things working for a multinational importer, I kind of like understood some of the general limitations of the supply chain, like how to talk about certain things and what people might be expecting but then also, like, with that knowledge, like, how to subvert them and get around them uh, to, you know, do things in a little bit more of an interesting way. Um, and then, yeah, now I'm, now I'm a consultant. And I so, work for at that time, did Merit not have a green buyer at all? So were you suggesting a new position to them? Essentially, yeah. So there, uh, at the time, the founder was uh, doing the green buying. Um and so he would select coffees and stuff, and he had traveled to origin uh, to Central America once or twice before. Um, but, yeah, I mean, ultimately my pitch to them was kind of very similar to what I told you about, you know, what I think a green buyer should be. Is I was like, you know, it really, if you want to do this on a different level, then you're really going to need to allocate a little bit more attention to it. Um, which you can do by like adding a person with a different skill set. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I, my pitch to them was sort of like, if you hire me, like you can really up your game in 
your ability to work with uh, people at origin. And I feel like that's sort of been my career journey is like, I'm still offering that to people, but my skill set is completely different. It's much better than it used to be. Um, but like, that's sort of always my, uh, my, what I'm reaching for is just like, you know, like the reason why you would want to work with me is because, you know, I can help you have that insight and connection that everyone is expecting you to have. But like, maybe, you know, you don't quite have the skills or connections to really do that yet. That's awesome. (laughs) So, you know, it was also part of the reason why I wanted to have the conversation a little bit um, sooner with you or, or not necessarily postpone it was because I'm getting a little bit more involved in helping the farm find customers and helping the farm find, like, just connecting people that would like to try yeast processed coffee, that would like to try what we're doing. I think there's there's enough of, like, interest. I'm just having trouble with the logistics, having never done this part of the, the process before. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm more interested in relationships and, like, how to write a contract and how do you even decide Um I was going to mention, so the, the difficult part with this first, um, what do I mean? I don't even know what to call him. Like client, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like if if we're the producer, then he's the client, um, buying the coffee where he was like, it was like this dance of, you know, what is the coffee, you know, what is the price of the coffee? And it's like, well, how much can you buy? If you're going to buy 10 bags or if you're going to buy a hundred, we can work something out. And then he's like, well, how much I can buy depends on the price. And so it were both kind of like dancing around of yeah. like price and volume. And then on top of that, it was the timing. So it was like, you know, when do you need this coffee? Do you need this coffee? We have some in the warehouse now in six months. Can you wait till October? And then he was also like, well, whatever's convenient for you, I can take this coffee whenever yeah. because he's got to make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so it's almost this difficulty of like trying to be too accommodating and too flexible yeah. means that there's nothing happening. So I was just curious, how do you, how have you approached that? Like who no, decides? So good. Honestly, like, um, I usually like to come to the table myself with, you know, because it's just an opportunity for me to define it in the terms that I want to see it. But also just like, I don't know. Um, it's kind of like, feel like rule number one is like always try to set clear expectations and like a really good way to do that is to come at it with with your expectations first so it like starts the dialogue and gives a framework especially if somebody's never done this before but like usually what um the type of things that are important to talk about first are obviously like like I usually come to the table and say like you know basis this quality and this volume, this is the price. I'm, like, I'll, I'll give, like, sort of a spec of, like, the things that I'm looking for, especially if it's a brand new relationship. I'll sort of, I'll look at my forecasting and figure out what my needs are. And then I'll kind of come with, like, a little bit of, like, a shopping list, you know, and, like, be like, this is generally what I need. Like, what do you have that can kind of work in this? Um, if I were in your position, and you know, like I would kind of, I would do the same thing, but obviously you're coming at it from a different way. So like what a lot of um, producers or people who are 
selling green coffee will do is it's very normal to have like a differential pricing system like what you were explaining where it's like you get volume breaks and so usually it's like you know people will just decide like okay like normal units would be like five bags 10 bags 25 bags you know xyz if there's some like there's no like set volumes besides like a container or something obviously so like you can if if you hit some sort of volume break for milling or something like that you can build that in um and yeah i feel like the best way to come about it is just to sort of like come with a schedule and like come with a suggestion and then kind of like let the conversation go from there so yeah pricing and volume is definitely like that also um you know shipping month i mean if this customer is like just yeah, like if they're pretty agnostic about it, then I would just make a suggestion based on what works for you. Um, and the other thing that's always really important to talk about is the the like inco terms, like the terms of the contract. Like, is it going to be FOB? Is it going to be you know prepaid? Is it going to be um, like are they using an importer and it's going to be X warehouse? Like figuring out. Because, like, for example, let's say you find a roaster who wants to buy this farm's coffee, right? Like, um, if they can do all of the steps in between, then that's great. Like, you can make a contract with just them and you're done, you know? But if they are not the person who's going to be – if even if you're using an exporter and an importer and, like, a miller as, like, service providers in between, if the coffee changes hands, then you have to have the contract string between all of them. Um, so actually, like, even though they have an agreement with you that they're, you're, they're going to buy your coffee and they can have a contract with you, like, it's also important for them to have that, to have a contract with the importer or whoever, you know, their last link of the chain is going to be because that's who they're going to end up paying, you know? Um, does that make sense? It does. I just realized how... Um how little I know about this process. I knew I knew very little, but I got to the point, I had this like attitude of like, we can figure this out. We can ask a lot of questions. I have, I have friends I can ask. Um, but one of the very first roadblocks after we had this conversation of trying to figure out, okay, if we've, we've now arranged a volume, 60 bags, and now we've arranged a price, okay, $4 per pound. And now we still have the calendar that's kind of up in the air of when, when we can maybe consolidate with another container and then get it out and so we have that flexibility. And then I remember thinking we were having this conversation like this through through Zoom. And I was like, so do we make the contract? Do you make the contract? Do we decide it together? Like, what is the protocol for a contract? Like, who decides? It's whoever has, honestly, I, I feel like it's whoever has the the, the supply chain established already. In this case, you're sort of, you're sort of in the air because neither of you has it. So like if it were me, just to keep things timely and to keep things, it's like, okay, that's an opportunity for me to just exercise a little bit more, you know, choice. So like, you know, at that point, like once you have an agreed upon volume and price and set of lots, then that's the point at which you like need to start involving other people that are in the chain. Um, because like unless this person has like like 
they're going to buy it cash against docks in the port. They're going to pay for all of the ocean freight and stuff, which people do. But like the more, like a smoother way to do this is to sort of like, once you start talking about like, hey, I might want to move some coffee. Like here's a soft idea of generally what we want to do. Like it's always easier to bring those people in uh, kind of like at the beginning of the harvest cycle so that they can kind of keep you in mind. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah, that uh, makes sense. So I think that's really helpful that it's not necessarily a protocol or rules, but just sort of etiquette. So this uh, roaster that I was talking with has been buying coffee for eight years. Mm-hmm. And this farm has been really like this, this, they've been selling coffee, but it's been mostly domestic. And so getting this exported coffee at this level is very new. So the mm-hmm. etiquette there would be that the roaster would uh, provide a little bit more information or mm-hmm. potentially be more of the the responsible party in providing, like you said, some, some of those decisions that we can try to work around. Yeah, I mean, has this roaster ever been this involved with somebody who does not have a, a way to export their coffee? Because they might really not know either. I mean, if that's the case, it's just at that point, it's, I feel like it's just sort of um, like any interpersonal thing where you have to say like, you know, I've never done this before. These are the problems we need to solve. Like, I need you to engage with me on this in a different way. And usually like the logical way to break that up would be that the, um, the roaster deals with all of the stuff that happens once the coffee hits the port. So like basically like importing how they're going to like the roaster gets with the importer and the, you know, um, the farmer gets with the exporter and then you make those two people talk, um, talk to each other. I think that's really difficult when like the idea of having to admit, like, I've never done this before, or I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I know people hate it, but (laughs) Everybody's got it. Nobody comes out of the womb knowing how to, you know, totally get an MBA certificate. Yeah. From like my American upbringing and my American perspective, I'm a lot more comfortable saying like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. And I, I, one alternate, um, alternate, uh, title for the podcast, like when I was years ago and I was thinking about doing it was like, I was going to call it, I could be wrong. I'm like, this is what I think, but I could be wrong. (laughs) Yeah. That wasn't very attractive. But I think in Latin culture, because um, I was also have that that um, cultural background, that that cultural baggage, there's a lot more like ego, and I think there's a a fear of being taken advantage of if you show, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Hey, I'm For here sure. as a beginner. Yeah, and that I feel so, like that is like a there's a, a spectrum of that across like it's a little that is a little bit different in every culture, you know. Like I have some friends that work in tea and they like, they talk about how it's very extreme to that extent in working in say China, you know, people have that sort of uh, fear of being had or like they, you need to like prove that you like won't get had almost. Um, So yeah, no. And I think, um, but it's also, it's not like it's unfounded. Like there are a lot of producers that do get taken advantage of. Yeah, no, of course, that's absolutely true. I mean, yeah, like, if you, that's the thing, is if you're going to try something new, like, ultimately, like, it's a risk, you know? Um, I mean, 
I don't really know what other advice to say than like, don't back out at the last minute and be a good person. But, you know, but yeah, that's the thing is that, you know, um, another reason why at the beginning of a project, it can be so um, important to involve these kinds of intermediaries that provide these services is that they also provide a little bit of extra structure and verification that people are going to do what they say they're going to do. Um, you know, and someone could default at any point in, in that line of contracting. But when you, you know, I think also I'm a big fan of actually making a physical contract. I know that sounds like super, super simple, but people are really, uh, some people just really don't care about it. But I feel like it's not about having the legally binding document because ultimately like if something goes wrong or if something, you know, doesn't quite go to plan, I'm going to work with you. It's more about having a fixed point in time opportunity where we both get to look at all the information together and agree on it. You know what I mean? So that way, like there's no misunderstanding. Um, so yeah, I feel like having that sort of, um, just like having to involve these different parts in a more formal way, like not only do you like get the expertise, which you really need when you start, but like you also have a little bit more formality around it. You know, I think it, it holds people accountable in a different kind of way. Totally. I also wanted to talk about what you just mentioned about the the most basic and obvious thing, I think, in a lot of other industries is to have a physical contract. Mm-hmm. But I have been so or I'm no physical, longer surprised. Not, it doesn't you know what I'm saying, like actually written that both parties review yeah. and sign and stuff. Yeah, it's it's no longer surprising to me, but it was when I first started uh, working in coffee, how much business happens by a handshake, by a conversation, by like assumption by interpretation, right. uh, how much business, I, like I would talk to producers who wanted to hire me as a consultant to visit and they would just send me messages on WhatsApp or Instagram chat. And I'm like, can we at least go to email? Like there's so much that happens. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and other so, channels. Absolutely. And so for me, I find it really useful, even with people who I have a very close personal relationship with in my coffee supply chain, who are my friends or, you know, who I like also just have, like, we are not just, you know, buyer seller. Like, I think of putting this kind of structure around our business as a way to actually safeguard our friendship, not something that gets in the way or like bogs it down. Because if we both have because the worst thing that could happen is you have unclear expectations about how something is, is going to go. And then you, you know, like something goes wrong and it becomes a, a personal conflict versus like, okay, we came at this together. We both knew the risks and we looked at, we like kind of made a plan for what would happen if something went wrong and everybody understands what their responsibility is. And that allows you to have situations where like, like, you know, a coffee, like if I have to accept the risk because that's what I signed up for, or they have to accept the risk because that's what they signed up for, then like I've had situations where like that happens and I can still, you know, we still maintain our friendship and our respect for each other. And it's because we, you know, kind of bit the bullet and put a little bit more formality in at the beginning. So, yeah. So I, I think a lot, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of people, um, 
especially if their style of business is just a lot more personal, like they really feel a little uncomfortable with doing that. But I would just encourage people to think about it as, again, just part of that setting clear expectations because it's actually protecting your relationship. It's not, you know, um, it's not like making it too stuffy or anything. No, I think that's huge. I'm so glad you said that because I think that that paradigm shift is like we all want the same goal, which is a good business and a positive relationship. And it's sort of like the cultures can approach it in different ways, saying the best way to have a better relationship is if we don't have it to be so businessy. Like I don't send my friends or my brother an invoice because those are my relationships and we're very close. And you think, oh, we're so close. I don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But we, I think in, in a lot of the times in coffee, we want it both ways. Like we want to have these long-term relationships and we want to feel like we're friends and we visit each other. But at the end of the day, it's still a business. And so well, sometimes you don't know when, when you're in what camp. Like are, do you have your friend hat on or your business hat on? And no, sometimes totally. people are opposites. No, it's important to have that structure. Like for example, I, you know, like a good way to deal with something like that too is maybe – you know, like I have uh, people I work with where we're constantly talking on WhatsApp about stuff. And so just to avoid any kind of uh, like, and that's a really cool, useful space because we can, you know, talk about ideas. We can say like, I'm kind of interested in doing this without being like, I'm interested in booking a contract of this, you know? Um, And so like, especially if, someone is acting as like a parchment buyer for me and 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 they pre-finance this stuff like it's really important for them to know exactly what like my commitment level is to things because sometimes uh you can't really get the contracts going before like you have everybody in place so mm-hmm. yeah i mean like a good way to deal with something like that is just you know, like we decided, all right, we're just going to make a shared Google sheet. And when it's like, act on this, like put your money forth on this, I'm committing to this. Like we sort of made our own, we decided like what our contract procedure was going to be. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, uh, it's just like you were saying with, you know, just like, can we at least put this in email? Like, yeah, you know, sometimes, especially when you're working with close friends, you have to, you know, sit down and decide like, okay, like this is how we're going to communicate about this. And this is how we'll communicate about this. And if it's not perfect and there's a little crossover, that's okay. But like, wouldn't you want, like, if you, if you're working with somebody that you care about, wouldn't you want to do the absolute best for them? Definitely. So can you share what is on your Google doc? Like what kind of information? Well, in this case, it's like, um, so uh, it's my uh, friend who purchases on my behalf in Mexico, right? So um, it's the same kind of information that would be on a contract in terms of like what type of volume there's going to be, uh, what you know the general profiles of the lots will be, or maybe the areas that they'll come from, uh, sort of like a general price point, um, and. You know, the only reason why we do that instead of actually making a contract is just that we wait until we also have the exporter, the importer, and everything else in line to just execute all of the contracts finally. And he and I have found that this was a better way for us to exchange information, you know? So Um, is this a sheet that you 
is it a document that you update and change constantly or does it serve more as like a pre-contract like this is what we talked about kind of and i mean you can do this differently with you know like it depends on the supply chain but like people will do this differently um in like people can do this a lot of different ways like pre-contracting is a thing sometimes i'm like well can we just make a contract then like we can make the terms like flexible but but i understand too because sometimes it's just like the the extra legwork that's involved with actually generating the paperwork is not quite worth it but you want something else that signifies more than a handshake and has those details that you can both verify and be like well that's right well that's not right we said this because especially when you're dealing with a lot of different like a lot of different types of coffee from one supply chain like people just make mistakes and it's like, it's good to, it's good to have a check. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I've also seen, you know, um, different importers and exporters will, you know, they kind of like enter it into their system and you have like pre-contracted in your position. And it's just like, I prefer to just, I don't know. I'm of the school of like, let's just make a contract and we can make the terms like, uh, subject to approval of sample, like, like no replace or something like you can, you know, decide what the terms are going to be, but I don't know. Not everyone is like, for example, I'm learning that a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, importers and stuff that work in Europe are a lot more used to people just buying stuff spot or like, uh, approving based on arrival. So they think of it more as like, they, they're more into like kind of putting a pre-contract in their system, but they don't want to give you the contract until it's like completely, completely done. And that's fine. I get it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like as long as you have a place together to check, that's what is important. You know, it makes it a lot easier. Like having a contract is just something that we like, like everybody's got to do at some point eventually. So like, I just like to say, Hey, this is the point at which I, you know, decide that I'm serious, you know, and then I tweak depending on what different supply chains need. But like for 90% of them, it's like, cool. Like we're in agreement that these are the things I'm looking for. Let's just put a contract on for it. That makes sense. I'm also thinking about, like you said, like you're, you're starting to get a sense of how, different um, different countries or different parts of the world operate and I've been very sensitive to cultural differences in communication like I mentioned I have the most experience with uh, with a Latin culture because that's my heritage and that's also where I do most of my work mm-hmm. and the the Latin sensibility of wanting to please and wanting to make things work yeah and so I think when, when you were mentioning earlier of like a good place to start is like knowing your limitations and saying like this is how much I can produce by this date etc but now when I work with a lot of of Latin producers they can move the earth and the moon. They're like, well, if we need more, I'll buy from a neighbor. If we need this, we'll do this. If we and there's so much, there's so much eagerness to to please, and they really don't. Most of the ones that I've met don't like to say no, even if no is like yeah. the kindest answer. <laughs> they don't want to say no. Yeah, no, I understand, and and that's um. So I was just curious, like, if you've had in your in your coffee career have had some kind of cultural. Uh, clash is too strong of a word, but just kind of these realizations of how, with with yourself, of having to work with different coffee producers who don't see the world exactly like you do. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I think it, it's hard to you can't know in your first year of working with somebody because you're just getting to know them and how they work. I think it's more like like I always come at it with this. I'm maybe a little bit overly cautious and, and overly structured at first, like I've been describing, where it's like I just I just it's the it's the way I know how to be the most clear about what I need and how to how to work how to be the best partner I can be. But yeah, I just, it's kind of like, you know, as I get to working with an individual or a group, like over two, three harvests, you know, we use those expectations that we set together and come back to them. And it's like, hey, like, we didn't really, that didn't really seem to fit or that wasn't the thing, you know, I'm not here to be like, you know, um, oh, like you were uh, you know, you were two bags short or something like that. And that's impossible for me to, you know, like done relationship done. No, it's like, you know, if like you, you know, you set an expectation and then you go through the next cycle and it's like, mm, was that really realistic? And they're like, Oh, maybe not. Then like, just say like, well, yeah, let's be a little bit more flexible about it next time. And I always like to put it like, I'm not like doing you a favor. We're just sort of in a trial and error process. And it's the same thing with me. Like sometimes I have stuff where it's like, yeah, I thought I could, you know, I thought I could work with that, but actually like I should have done it this way because it would have made it a little flow a little bit better for everybody, you know? Um, so I guess in a nutshell, I think it's mostly just about kind of like, like I like to start by trying to communicate what, like I can control in my head as clearly as possible. And then as I get to know the personality and sort of like the tendencies of the people I'm working with, then I just kind of work around that. Like if I, if I know, you know, this person, like I know they really want this coffee to ship in May. They'll tell me it's going to ship in May. Like they are so like committed to it shipping in May, but like, it's probably going to ship in July just because from experience, I know that there's always delays at that time at the port, at the mill, at the whatever, then, yeah, I mean, we can put the contract on for May, but like, I'm going to, I know on my end, I'm going to set myself up for success by being like, all right, I don't need this coffee till July. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah, I think that is just like learning about people, you know, like learning how people approach things. And some people it's like, oh yeah, like you're always on time or you're always, you're like exactly what you say you're going to do. And yeah. So how do you think of yourself now as a different type of buyer than you did several years ago when you started? Oh man. What do you do differently now? Well, I think in general, it probably doesn't sound like it because I'm being like so analytical about it. But I think in general, I'm just, I just try to be a little bit more flexible. Like I always have a plan going into it, but like, like I always know what I'm purchasing a coffee for, but things change and the coffees come in and they suit something else. And so I think I'm just in general, like a bit more um, flexible to what's like what happens as the coffee moves through the chain. And I try to like, I still try to make the best plan going into it, but I never expect it to go exactly as I'm, I'm thinking like I, when I, 
first started, I was even more like, I need like 3.5 bags of this and like, that's going to be it. And it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> so you've had to relax your expectations a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I guess kind of to your point before, I sort of, especially if I'm in a, if I'm starting a relationship with somebody, like I, I usually build in a little buffer on the edges of things like just so that like if they are that type of person that is trying to move the moon and the stars for me and it's just not going to happen like we can still work together and I can still kind of make it work I think the biggest thing with that is mostly timelines like I brought up ship month but like I could that's really the thing like I usually just the more I give myself flexibility on when the coffee is going to arrive, the less stressful my life is, and it usually ends up working out. I think that's really good advice. I'm also thinking that your uh, your flexibility, what you call flexibility, is something that I would call like context. I think like we're kind of talking about the same thing, yeah. where you have the people that you know are able to be a little bit more reliable, maybe because of just geographically where they are. Maybe they're just closer, so things don't take as long. Or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Or like you, like you said, like, you know, and I would say like working with most cultures outside of like a, you know, like this hot take, but like Americans, Colombians and Germans, like (laughs) you're pretty much like got to accept like, no, like things are not going to go to your like perfect little plan. It's, it's going to be two months late. Like, relax. It's two months late every year. You can plan for that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think, that, yeah, those um, those cultural contrasts, like, I'm, I'm very much wearing my American hat most of the time here where, like, I'm just very much efficiency. For me, it's like if it takes more, if it's more letters than it needs to be to, like, get this done, like, right. we did something wrong. Right. And Latin culture is like... You call somebody and it's four minutes of like, hey, how are you doing? How's the weather? How's the family? Know, how's right? your aunt doing? How How's the dog feeling? And then it's like, oh, did you receive that shipment? Like five minutes later. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I definitely have to check myself like to be a little bit more just like chill the Friendly. heck out. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, because like I, I feel friendly feelings <laughs> for yeah. these people. I'm like, I'm excited to talk to them. But, but yeah, I can... I, yeah, in, in my cultural context, it's like being respectful of somebody's time is a, is a, is a way to show them that you care about them as well. So I just have to, you know, that's just one example of having to remember that like your approach to things is not that way. But at the same time, you know, when people are developing a relationship with you, like, even if like, you shouldn't feel that you have to completely bend everything about the way that you see the world to um to try to match a context that you didn't come from you know like no matter how hard you try like you're gonna bring your you know uh the effect of your life like your touch to what you do so be understanding but also like if you're working with good people like they will understand like oh this isn't like they're usually smart enough too to figure out like oh like this is an American thing where like, she's being like, she's like her sending me like a breakdown like this is not like, I'm not in trouble. Like, this is just like how she conceptualizes things. And so, yeah, that's like a good reason too why just like 
having some face-to-face chat or like on the phone or something can be kind of important because sometimes I feel like those cultural differences can be a little bit exacerbated through email or text. So it's like for them to see your face smiling when you're asking the question. (laughs) No, and I think it's, you know, it's very basic and it's, you can get into so much trouble overgeneralizing and especially like putting people into, into big cultural groups. But I think that in this context of communication between two parties of very different cultures, the the length of communication is something that I see come up a lot. Mm -hmm. And exactly like you said, like I, as an American, express my, express my friendliness by not taking up your time, by making this a 30 minute or 30 second conversation and letting you like move on with your day. Like that's how I show that I respect you and that I like you. And the Latin part is like, how cold and rude that like we didn't sit and talk for 15 minutes about this and like that's their friendliness and to just as a reminder to you know all of the producers that I've inadvertently uh you know who see me as rude it's like this is how I show that I care about you (laughs) and just to remember who you're talking to yeah I absolutely you know I I'm on the same page like if I if I send you a spreadsheet it's because I love you, not because I, I'm trying to prove a point or something. Like, it's just how my mind works. I'm just curious, Jamie, if you feel any additional pressure as a female in the space to be friendly and agreeable. Yeah, I do. But I, I think um, I usually feel more of, of more pressure to sort of like... Um, try to be part of the conversation you know like I um I want like I feel like I have to break through a little bit more for people to sort of get to know me you know um like I would say you know in terms of like when I'm traveling as a buyer you know of course I experience misogyny sometimes but it's a little different because I'm in a position of power so it's like you know um it's a little bit uh like that pressure is relieved a little bit I feel more you know pressure for people to you know see my personality because I have this extra thing of like you know maybe I'm not the gender they expected um so yeah I think it I know it affects how I communicate with people but I'm not sure I can really articulate just how I was also thinking that I I think I might have a little bit more of a, like a shock with people because I look, I'm like, like, you look like us. Like I have darker skin and I have brown eyes and like, I look Latin. So I should be a little bit more, um, have more of a Latin culture, but because I, that's just not where I grew up. Like my mentality and my way of functioning in business is so American, like almost to like that German position of like being as economic as possible with like words and communication so I think it's more of a shock when people deal with me whether like you look like us and you're a girl and you're not you're not being like like their version of nice yeah no I think perhaps that's true I and I'm sure and also I'm sure you face different pressures than I do because of you know because you are like the farmers are often your client so like it's completely different dynamic of um of power there you know so Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) (laughs) so I wanted to also talk about when we sort of brought it up before but let's back up to what happens when you do need to break up in a relationship and like how 
have you had to break up with some producers before? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, I think, like, let's talk about it, like, what does the life cycle of a relationship between a roaster or a buyer and a producer look like? Because it could be, I mean, it could be an exporter buying any level up from there, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the best, like, when you the start is important to how things are going to end. So like starting with respect and clarity of expectations will probably mean that your relationship can last longer and be more sustainable because you start developing a good rapport really early and you know what to expect from each other, you know? Um, then like, so what's happened for me is, okay, so let's say, uh, like, for example, I, I was working with this farm in Nicaragua, right? Um, when I first started at Merit and they, you know, Merit had, had bought from them for one year and the coffee was great. And then I came in and we bought the coffee again and it was delicious. So I was like, okay, cool. Like, I really I like this coffee. You know, uh, I started to develop a rapport with the producer and, um, you know, we contracted it again. And the following year, it was not quite as good, but, you know, I was like, that's cool. I'm in this for the long haul. Um, but Sorry to interrupt, but what does cool. not quite as good mean? Like, was that on cup score? Was it on pro? Like, what was the uh, benchmark like and then where did things. it go to? So cup score and, and I'd say, like, the physical physical quality was a little bit uh, lacking, which, of course, those two are kind of related. So for me, it was like, um, yeah, you know, we – it, let's say it was supposed to be an 86, it was an 84, uh, and there were, you know, it was more inconsistent in size and density than I was expecting, which is not necessarily the producer's fault, but, um, yeah, so I don't remember the exact details, but it was essentially that, you know, but, like, yeah, when something is that, and it wasn't, like, it was a sizable quantity, you know, um, like 40 50 bags which for merit was a good a good amount right um so yeah like i you know approached it first like okay like i approved it as per pre-ship so i approved the pre-ship and everything was good and the issues were with the arrivals so i was like all right i want to honor the terms of my contract you know that's the risk i took but, you know, the first thing I did was I kind of, I got with the different people in the supply chain and with the farmer and was like, hey, like, I experienced these problems with the coffee this year. I'm not asking for a claim. You know, that's pretty important. Like, to just, like, if you if you want a claim, like, bring real good evidence to the table and, and make that part of the conversation, like, right up front. But I, that wasn't my goal. My goal was how can we make this better next year? So, so yeah, I brought up the, I, you know, gave the feedback and, you know, saw what I was seeing and, or, or described what I was seeing and experiencing with the coffee. And I was like, cool, like, can you, is it, did anything different happen this year? Like, I just wanted to have some sort of, you know, explanation. Like, even if it was just like, ah, oh, no, we just like seem to have an off year or whatever. Like, I, w I was like, help me understand like what could have changed, you know, and how, and if there's anything we can do to control it to, you know, try to make it better for next year. This was like right when the coffee arrived. So there was a whole, you know, nine months or something before it was going to be harvested again. And there would have been plenty of time to do something, you know, 
like if there, it was some sort of like more in-depth project, I think it would have been a reasonable timeline. So anyway, so I guess to summarize it, like I took my, I took my responsibility with the coffee and then I came back and said like, okay, like what, how can I help you make this better? You know? Um, and so they said, no, you know, like, um, long story short, like we came up with like a small plan and like some kind of ideas about how they were going to communicate with me about it. And then the next year came and same thing happened. And so we went through the same process and I said, look, like, and that's when, you know, I started setting, uh, I know kind of an ultimatum. Yeah, I guess like, like, Hey, like, so I can handle this again, but I need you to know that this is really, this is really affecting me. And, um, you know, unless we take some clear steps to illustrate, like, cause everybody has an off year. Like you just have to plan for sometimes people like people's copy just isn't going to hit because of the weather or whatever, you know, but two years in a row, I feel like is enough to be like, okay, like what's going on. Like if we want to continue working together, like, I need to understand what your challenges are, you know? Um, and yeah, you know, um, so did the same thing and they didn't really come up with, they had other markets for their coffee and I totally understand. And, you know, they had people to sell to who were perfectly happy with it as it was. And so I was like, you know, so before the harvest even started, it's like, look, it's been really wonderful working with you. I just want to make it clear that, you know, I like, I don't really think we're on the same page and I'm not going to be able to buy this coffee at this price point anymore. Um, you know, I, I also said like, I can use it at this price point if you're interested in selling it to me at that. But if you have a better market for your coffee, like you should absolutely take advantage of it. You know, um, I think like the key element here is just like, you know, keeping it professional, having like, you know, bringing lots of evidence to the table for what is going on with it, with the coffee that's making it, or with the relationship, like let's say the communication is bad, like show what exactly is the problem and give lots of opportunity and structure for it to get better. And then if it doesn't after I say two harvests, you know, then it's like, I think that's an appropriate time to, you know, to break up, you know? Um, and of course it's different when you have like major, major defects or breach of contract or like something that's really extreme. Uh, yeah. When you have something that's really extreme and it makes it impossible for you to use the coffee, then, you know, depending on the terms of your contract, you might be able to work together somehow to, to move the coffee faster. Like maybe they give you a little bit of a discount and, you know, you as the roaster, are able to use that in a cheaper price point coffee. And so you move the coffee fast and nobody is accruing a bunch of financing and carry, you know, it's kind of just like, I don't know. I just like, I always try to give people like a chance to explain like why it might not have met my expectations. And, um, like I more judge whether we're going to break up or not based on how they respond to it and how we communicate together about the problem. Yeah, I also really agree with your um, use of 
air quotes with breakup. I don't think it's a great term. Uh, I don't like, <laughs> I don't know if we want to perpetuate it, but I think it's, it really embodies, especially because we're talking so much about relationships, um, how it, it can feel that way. And I was also thinking about how a lot of these business relationships, because there's so much friendliness and friendship and they can be, you know, over so many years, they're, they can be very emotional. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these conversations, I think also because so many people that get into coffee do it from a place of passion. So we have a lot of passionate, emotional people in these relationships Mm -hmm. and and communication is really, um, I think, underrated. I also wanted to ask you about, in this particular example, it sounds like it wasn't just coffee quality, but it was the communication. Like if that second year they had maybe warned you or kind of talked to you before and said, hey, we might be dealing with something similar. We might, you know, just because for me, it sort of sounds like you were surprised. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Like I, I'm more, I'm more end relationships with people because the communication isn't there versus like the quality of the coffee doesn't work because I, you know, usually I, like I said, kind of about um, initially like giving that that buffer for the relationship to start. Like I usually also am a little bit conservative about the quality point that the coffee is going to come in at. Like say, you know, I'm dealing with a new project and I cup out, you know, a bunch of pre-ship samples and they're 85. I'll be like, okay, let's play it on the safe side and we'll put this in a spot that just needs to be an 84 or it just needs to kind of have these basic things. And then if it's better, if it exceeds expectations, then amazing you know what I mean and that just kind of like I feel like that allows the relationship a little bit of room to grow um and a little bit of room for things to not go perfectly because they don't usually um so uh so yeah it's definitely not necessarily about not being able to work with coffee um it's more like like what has happened to me before is that like I'll start with somebody who's really new to specialty and, you know, like we work for a year or two together and they, their quality improves and they start having, you know, more opportunities because of the work that we did, like more opportunities to sell their coffee, more market access. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, if they find somebody that they want to work with, who is, you know, uh, who they click with more, and they can sell their coffee at a higher price for less work, then like, yeah, absolutely. But I usually find that like the people that like, you know, like that I'm most excited to continue working with are the ones who's, who continue to raise their own standards, you know, like not to an unrealistic amount, but like if you, you know, go through a relationship after a couple of years and you find that, you know, like, the farmer is like, this is just fine. And actually like, like I, I love you as a person. Um, and there's nothing wrong with me selling coffee to you. It's just that it's a little bit easier this way. It's like, you know, flow towards the easy way. Like I, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, disrespect that at all. You know, um, does that make any sense? It does. It, it brings up something else that I didn't think I would ask you about, but something that I've noticed in working with different producers, again, from the producer side, is the concept of exclusivity. And you, you're in Texas, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I think this is a Texas saying, uh, like, you got to dance with the one that brung you. And so I think... <laughs> Clearly not from That's... Texas, Lucia. <laughs> no? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that is a Texas thing, but <laughs> your, your Texas accent. My Texas accent needs work? All right. W- will you do it for us? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not from Texas either, so... Yeah, but yeah, it's, it is... Yeah, you got to dance with the one that brought you, yeah. Um, and so... I've noticed on the producer side, a lot of producers that I work with, when I ask them, you know, why, uh, whether there's a price that is kind of like, I, I feel like hit a ceiling or like their quality's improved or something's in there that we've done different. And they're like, oh no, we have to sell to this person. And like that mentality I've, I've found really interesting and I find it a little bit more common than I would like. So I just wanted to, from your perspective, is exclusivity ever appropriate or do you notice that trend or is it just something that I made up? No, no. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because um, it, like, from a roaster perspective, it really depends on your market. Like, sometimes you want to pursue more exclusive relationships because you're in a very dense market and you need to offer something different. But I know how limiting exclusivity can be for a producer. And I feel like if you are, if you as a roaster want to say, like, I want to be the only one that can offer this coffee, then that means that you need to make a really serious long-term commitment to it and be like, you know, I'm going to buy all of this coffee like for three years, you know, or something like that. But even so, like, I think, you know, and sorry to interrupt, but you don't just mean that for the next four, three years in a row, you mean today making a commitment for the next three years yeah. to, sell, mm-hmm. to buy that coffee. Yes, yes. Like making a, like we could sign like a three-year contract or something. But even so, I just feel like, like that's also a huge risk for me. So I'd much rather prefer to just say, you know, it's not necessarily good either for um, a producer's whole, you know, uh, like, like, even if it's we're just talking about one copy of several that they offer, like, it's better for them to have a more diversified, you know, profile of people that they work with, you know, not only because it makes them better because they get to learn from different people besides just me, or like, communicate with different people besides just me. But like, also, you know, it's just like, it's a way to have more stability in their business and be more resilient, you know? Um, like, and yeah, I, I know that that some uh, roasters will, you know, demand exclusivity or ask for it, or they'll, or producers feel pressure to offer that. So to alleviate that, I usually start the conversation with like, you know, what I'm giving like the little like about me of like, what am I about as a buyer? I'm like, I don't care about exclusivity or, you know, if I do, like, I'll make that very, very clear and make a, a much stronger commitment because, yeah, you, you're creating a lot of limitations when you do that. Well, and I think mostly it's the the mentality that I don't, it just doesn't vibe with like my personality of that idea of like, I, I was the first one to buy your specialty coffee. I was the first one to give you this price. And like, so now you owe me to continue this relationship. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like we were talking about where like, like you should buy like with the mentality that it's a seller's market. Like if you want to really create a less like colonially influenced supply chain, then you should like buy thinking that it's that the producer has more power or that, you know, the seller of the green has more power. 
the thing is, like, um, if you want to live in a world where producers have more agency, then, like, you know, allow more agency and flexibility. Someone should want to continue working with you because you're a good partner to work with, not because they feel like they owe you, you know? Um, like, if you want to offer somebody exclusivity because you're, you like working with them, then that's your power to give. It's not an obligation that you carry because somebody gave you, you know, um, yeah. And I mean, that stuff can get a little tricky because, you know, like you can only know what is appropriate for that sort of thing when you're in the situation. But I think as a general rule, like, I don't feel like it's a fair expectation at all to consider that, like, because you were the first one to buy someone's copy or the first one to give them more market access, you suddenly have this like premium on what they do. I think that's really important for producers to hear. I think it's like it, it really makes sense, but it isn't it isn't so um so intuitive. Or we just think, "Oh, this is how the market works because this is or this is how the business works because they may be new to it and they're like this this might be the the price to play here at this level." Right. I mean, you know, if you if someone has been the only person to buy your copy for 10 years and suddenly you have new opportunities, then you know, like, you have a relationship with that person, and you know how they're gonna, you you might, if you, if you don't know how they're gonna react to, you know, you just suddenly not having the coffee to offer, then, like, talk to them, you know? Um, it's just, if you're not sure about something, or if you think you're gonna create some sort of social faux pas, like, you can, I know it's different because there's a power dynamic at play there, but, like, yeah, I mean, you know, a good way to know is to ask, but like, as a, if you want to try to alleviate that as a buyer, a good way to, you know, kind of get ahead of that is to give clear expectations of what you can buy really early on in the season so that people know, producers know what to expect from you as they're starting to get coffee in. Like, I feel like ideally, I really like for people to, if I can, I like for people I'm working with at Origin to know what I'm looking for, like, right as the harvest is starting, you know? So they obviously don't have coffee for me yet, but they can kind of know generally what my needs are. And so if they have the opportunity to sell to somebody else, they already have in mind, like, what I've got. And, like, if there's some sort of, you know, um, conflict there where it's like, oh, well, this person, you know, like offered to buy this for twice as much like yeah you know then they have the opportunity to come back to me and be like hey like you know i got a better offer do you want to match it i got a better (laughs) offer yeah but that's another thing about making contracts is that if you set the contracts early then you know like it's a lot different to sort of like oh, I thought that's not what we said versus, like, you're Mm. defaulting on a contract. Like, we, you know, agreed on this together. Um, I don't know. It's just, in a nutshell, like, set clear expectations, you know, try to keep the channels of communication, um, act like it's a seller's market, and, uh, you know, like, don't uh, bite yourself in the butt because, (laughs) you know, buy, like, by screwing somebody over I don't know that wasn't very eloquent but you get it yeah definitely and I wanted to say to like from the producer side 
I, I would give the advice that if you are a producer in a newer relationship and the the buyer is asking for exclusivity, for me, that would be a little bit of a red flag. Yeah, a little bit of, I would say too. Why, why do you want this? Or maybe, like you said, like the ending has so much set up by the beginning. And so if that's how you're beginning a relationship, for me, what that signals, like exclusivity to me is very tied to scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's... I believe in abundance and I think there's enough of the coffee that, you know, that people want to buy, that people want to drink. I think there's enough for everybody. And so I just wanted producers who are maybe listening to this to know that there are so many options. Like there are buyers like you who don't want exclusivity, who, I mean, for me also exclusivity is a little bit of an indication that they may not be, a buyer may not be interested in your growth. They may not be, they're more interested in their their scarcity and what they can offer than like your development as as a producer. Right. And I think there are, it's, it's less likely that as a new producer, you're going to have a, you're going to develop a relationship with a buyer who can continue to match, who can continue to buy all of that coffee as you grow. Yeah. Because that's kind of a, that can be kind of a tall order. Um, so yeah, I would say like some red flags would definitely be exclusivity, uh, poor communication. I mean, also a lot of it is just that like you, even though we're dealing with cross-cultural communication and, you know, stuff like that, like it's still important to kind of figure out what are the values that matter to you in working with another person. And then just like kind of try to gravitate towards people like that. Like if you like, because if you're a buyer who is very romantic and, and really works better you know just like you just really hate having written stuff and you can't do it and that's just not how you can work then you're probably not going to really mesh with um like a producer who is like very analytical and very dollars and cents and wants everything to be clear and written or vice versa you know um i think like there's room definitely to like try to you know work with people who are not exactly like you it like in many ways but at the end of the day too like sometimes you just don't gel with somebody and like you just can't get on the same page and you can't figure out how to work together and that's that's just that's not like um like the coffee supply chain presents extra challenges to that but that's also just like working with other people Life. in general yeah totally <laughs> yeah I think that's a really good point to reiterate that there's not a right way that there, you know, even though we're talking about maybe best practices or some good ideas or tips that have worked, that's not necessarily the best way. If like you said, you, your personality is more kind of fluid and you you don't need to have so much um, written down, then finding that match for you could still work. Like even if you don't, if you do only communicate through handshakes and you know, looks across the room or something that finding that person that you, that you can connect with. Right. And I think part of that is just knowing yourself, like it sounds pretty corny, but it's like, if you know how you work uh, and are self-aware and can come to the table when you're first meeting somebody and be like, Hey, like these are kind of the things that are important to me and that I'm going to be asking a lot of questions about, or like these are, you know, some sort these like, these are the points that I take very seriously, you know, and these are some of the things that don't really matter that much to me, you know, um, that can be really, really helpful. Like, uh, 
So yeah, know yourself. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Do you have a few more minutes? I have something super unrelated to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about roasting. I got time. You, you're going to have to okay. deal with editing out my cat and the steps and the this and the that. So yeah, I, I have all the time for you. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so I noticed this. I feel a little bit silly not having noticed this um, pattern before, but it only recently occurred to me, the connection between... Um, roasters that like to roast light mm-hmm. and funky coffees and like that pairing seems to be uh I don't know why I never put those, those two things together and I think also part of the background to that story is I came up um I started drinking coffee in northern California that is a very and the specialty roasters there are generally as a group very light roasters mm-hmm. so I didn't know that it was light roast that was my baseline yeah. like that was my this is coffee introduction mm-hmm. um and I work with fermented coffees. Right. And so... <laughs> so all the coffees you try fall into this kind of, yeah. Groove. The coffees that I like to make and the coffees that I grew up, like I was just, you know, trained to, to drink that to drink that type of coffee. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious from your perspective of roasting, like how do you see this connection or how do you think about maybe processing and roasting? It could be a bigger picture about, you know, not necessarily fermented or, or funky coffees, but just how do you make that decide what you're buying and how it's going to fit in your profiles? Yeah, for sure. That's a good question. So, um, you know, I definitely start by thinking about how the coffee is going to be presented. Like, is it pitched more towards an immersion method or towards a filter method? Um, Because, yeah, immersion method, I'm going to go for more body forward coffees, maybe things with a little bit, uh, it's less driven by the acidity, whereas filter is much more about clarity. Um, and of course that's a spectrum, but those, that's like the basic starting point is usually I think about how the coffee is going to be consumed in the end, you know? Um, and you know what coffees I like, cause I liked a lot of Barrett's coffees, but I like acid. I like a lot of structure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, me too. And it's like, um, and no, I get it. And just a little sidebar, like, I think, yeah, probably the reason why there's a connection between people who like light roasts and people who like funky fermenty coffees is that you know like even like a not funky coffee that's light roasted is going to have more acidity and more uh like it's going to be more acid driven more driven by you know floral and citrus and fruit flavors than you know like a darker flavor will be more like a darker roast will be more chocolatey and caramelly no matter what in general you know um so if you like crazy fruity flavors in your coffee, then you'll probably also like fermented coffee, like extra fermented coffee. Yeah. So in terms of thinking about different um, places that I'm going to put it. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, so I think about how it's going to be presented and also like what the general customer profile is of the person who's going to buy it. So, you know, and that's really just comes from knowing your own clientele. So like you can kind of, I kind of think about it like, for example, um, you know, for Square Mile, uh, like almost 50%, a little bit more actually, of what they do is this one particular uh, blend called Red Brick. That's their espresso blend that is like their foundational thing. And it's, you know, it does rotate. It doesn't always taste the same, but it's, you know, it's delicious, it's approachable, it's chocolatey, it's like um, medium to low acidity kind of. Um, the coffees in it are great, but it's like it's like very comforting, you know? 
Um, and I'd say like most roasters, even people who do like really, um, you know, generally prefer more acidic or more like interesting coffees will usually find that they, you know, it's important for them to offer something that is like that as the foundation of what they do. Um, so I kind of think about that type of customer. And then I think about, you know, like maybe a coffee geek or somebody who's really into acidic or strange flavors. I think about the person who, I also think a lot about the person who is just like learning that coffee can taste different. And I feel like that's the person that naturals are for. <laughs> or so, or the, cause it's sort of like. It's the gateway. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So I think about, you know, um, you know, who's, who's consuming it, how they're going to be drinking it, you know, what type of effort they're going to put in, you know, to, to like grind it and do all the little things properly, you know, um, and also like what price they're going to pay, you know, like if they're a person who like, you know, they're just kind of dipping their toes and paying more for coffee, but, and they, but they just generally like something that's more chocolatey and chilled and like, you know, yeah, like they probably have more of a firm price ceiling than somebody who's like, I'm so in it. I just like want to learn and learn. And like coffee is like my hobby. And it's, you know, I don't mind paying for like that super expensive, like, you know, crazy varietal or something like that. Um, have you worked with any Robusta or any fine Robusta? Have you tried it? Or I've ever tried it. it. I haven't worked for a roaster that bought it, but that doesn't, I'm... I'm definitely, like, into it. I would love to buy some Robusta that really challenges people's expectations. Um, but it's, but I have, you know, when it comes to stuff like that, it's, like, it's got to be really, really right because I want to blow people's minds, you know? <laughs> I'm also, I'm, I'm, you know, curious about kind of following that path from the from the perspective of, we can acquire taste. So like I, because of where I grew up, acquired a taste for light roast coffee because I was told this is what coffee is. Totally. And I do like it. And so I'm just thinking about how much of the time we are asking producers, like we have a taste preference and we're asking producers to like come and meet us up here and match up here versus there's very little of the conversation of saying like, well, what can they grow? And can we train ourselves to like that? Yeah, absolutely. And not have such, such attention. No, I think that is so much about, I think that's a combination of obviously having a good communication with the supply chain as a buyer, but also like, like, like just marketing effectively, like marketing to the strengths of your supply chain and to what is possible with them, you know? So like a a more sort of a blanket way to approach that is like, yeah, like I kind of always come into a new relationship thinking like okay i want to buy like a core lot from this project that fits my like larger maybe more price sensitive needs uh and then i want to build like you know uh, a second tier and a third tier like that that's usually like a nice model to approach but like yeah you know like i've also worked with producers before where it's like well we don't really make that like core lot up here we kind of just do this and like this is what we can offer and it's like cool great like we're not gonna try to like reinvent the wheel like if that's what you're doing and that's what I can tap into like I don't want you to change your whole structure like you know so I think a good way to start a new relationship is to focus on um you know like whether it's possible for them to meet these bigger needs that you have at all 
you know, just like based on what they're doing right now. Um, and kind of approach it like that. Like that doesn't need to be the first coffee that you buy from them. But if it's like, you know, if like you are a roaster that, you know, maybe like your main clientele is grocery. And so you have to be price sensitive. You still want to buy good coffee. You still want to work with um, good producers. Then like, yeah, you are probably not going to be able to buy like a container of Asia, you know? <laughs> so like maybe like working with a farm that like in Panama that exclusively produces geisha, you know, is not going to be like, you have to prioritize how much time you're going to invest in that, you know? So, so again, matching, just matching. You can do what? <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on decaf? How much of it did you uh, purchase it for merit? Like what was the percentage of the decaf that you guys serve? Um, Probably, like, off the top of my head, I'd say probably, like, 10%, maybe. Pretty solid. Um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, working with um, Square Mile, which is, you know, also a pretty sizable roaster. I think they're at, like, 7, 7%. Um, so, yeah, I mean, personally, I, I kind of, like, made it my mission to always make our decaf really good because I just felt like, um, I don't know, it was a sort of a thing of mine that I cared about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm always interested in, in learning how it can be better. Why do you care about it? Just because I think it's like, if, if it's something that we're going to offer, it should be good. I like, I don't want anything to be an afterthought, you know? <laughs> Definitely. I'm interested in decaf personally, because I went through some, some gut health issues and was, uh, recommended that I should eliminate caffeine completely and that like I tapered down and then I was trying to get into decaf and I, I couldn't really it wasn't as, as readily available in terms of because I love the coffee ritual like I don't necessarily think I need the caffeine but I love no making coffee I do the and same thing ritual. actually my partner and I we always have decaf because after a certain time it's like we do want coffee but like it's nice to have it as the option and there are so many good options now I mean I feel like I know I know a lot of people really have an issue with ethyl acetate and I, I'm sort of trying to understand exactly, exactly why, like if it's a, if it's like sugarcane derived and stuff like that. So, you know, I might be wrong about this, but I am like in general, like that is definitely my favorite. Like usually, especially if it's, um, you know, I usually see ones that are, um, from this cafe call in Colombia where it's, uh, like, the supply chain is very tight and it's also kind of nice because you don't have to ship the coffee all around the world to get it decaffeinated. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit less of a carbon footprint there. Um, but also just like, yeah, the flavor is good. Like it tastes like the types of coffee that I like to drink because it's sort of like fruity and banana and, you know, um, and maybe that's not for everyone, but like, yeah, I feel like when I, the first time that I tried those, that type of decaf, I was like, oh my God, like, this is a decaf? <laughs> this tastes incredible. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I, I stay in decaf. I, I always have some around and I'm disappointed when it's really bad. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I'm trying to work on, I would love to do a yeast process decaf, cool. lot, something that is purposely made more dense, like having a longer fermentation so that there's just more 
like soluble material yeah. so that when you have the decaffeinated process, maybe it's Ooh, still a very that's robust a coffee. Great idea. I'm, I'm trying that. to find. I'm trying to find somebody who's like willing to, willing to take it. And that's where I have to abruptly cut it off because Jamie and I got into some business details that we are not ready to share publicly. There may or may not be a decaf project in my future. Huge thanks to Jamie for being my guest and the patrons who make this podcast possible. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to contact Jamie, her info is in the show notes. Or you can join us in Discord where Jamie will be joining me and you can ask her questions directly. I'm going to be announcing the date on Patreon and then I'll post a reminder on Instagram. If you want to lightly keep in touch, join my newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. I only send you an email when a new episode is coming out. So pretty, pretty low stakes there. And yeah, thanks for spending the hour with me. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.